Cancer has always seemed like such a scary thing to talk about, as if just consuming content about it would somehow make me more likely to develop it. Now, obviously that is absurd, but what is way crazier is how our lives can be dictated by for-profit companies after we get a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Monica Bryant. Monica is a lawyer and ex-Congress employee who now focuses her time and energy on being a cancer rights attorney and co-founder of the nonprofit Triage Cancer. She's here today to show us how little we understand about a system we put our money and trust into. Sorry to the international audience that this is quite United States-centered, but I think you'll actually enjoy it more after hearing all the issues that you don't have to deal with. I told you it would be a different kind of spooky for Halloween. Let's learn our rights in this almost cartoonish healthcare system. Welcome to the show, Monica Bryant. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? My name is Monica Bryant. I am a cancer rights attorney uh, and co-founder of a nonprofit called Triage Cancer, where we provide education on the legal and practical issues that come up after a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, that's really interesting. What got you into this? is a very long story, a very windy path. So I went to law school in Washington, D.C. I worked in Congress for a little while, and then personal reasons brought me to Chicago in the middle of a recession, which is not a great time to try to find a legal job. And I uh, actually volunteered for my sister, who worked in another organization helping individuals with cancer and one thing led to another, and 10 years ago, she and I co-founded the organization. That's, I mean, quite a journey to go from, from D.C. and Congress over to, like, a volunteer organization and working with, you know, cancer patients. That's quite a jump. I always say it's my windy road, but this is where I was meant to end up. And I picked up incredible knowledge along the way that helps me do this job. But ultimately, I went to law school with the idea that it is our responsibility as citizens of the world to try to make it a better place in whatever way, shape or form we can do that. And it just so happens this is the way that I am able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great message to put out there as well. Like anything you can do to better the world around you or help people improve their lives. Like that's a great mission. Yeah. I mean, if we all just tried a little bit each day, right? Think about how much better the world would be. It's a little Pollyanna, I recognize, but what gets me up in the morning. Oh, of course. So is there a reason that your sister had kind of started working in this specific area? So she, uh, in law school, worked at a hospital in a cancer center. And that cancer center had one of the first uh, boutiques in hospital where individuals who had been diagnosed with cancer and were receiving treatment could go and get things like wigs or breast prostheses if they had had a mastectomy. And it was all in the place where they were getting treatment. They didn't have to try to go find that externally. 
And part of her job was helping to do the billing. And at the same time, she was in a class in law school where she learned about this law uh, that said that insurance companies had to cover certain things that occurred as a result of cancer treatment. And when insurance would come back and deny the prostheses or the bras that are required for the prostheses, you know, all she would have to say is the name of the law. And immediately that denial went to an approval. And it just sort of stuck with her that knowledge is power. And she didn't even have to explain that she understood what the law said. She just had to say that she knew that there was a law. And so that really spurred, uh, I think, this passion for her in helping other people navigate our incredibly complex systems. Yeah. And it seems so shady for a company to like know that this law exists in the just mentioning the name puts the fear in them that they will approve an expenditure, but they won't outright approve it otherwise. I think a lot of people forget that in the United States, insurance companies are businesses. They are not altruistic entities and they will do things that help their bottom line. Uh, Not to say that they're all evil. You know, they are a necessary player in our system, uh, but it does require more often than not that people really understand how to navigate that system in order to get the coverage that they are entitled to. Yeah. And this is a a very international podcast. As I've talked about before, we have something like 115 countries that tune in. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. It is probably bizarre for most of them to hear a lot of this about insurance. Uh, Not just about health insurance, but I would probably argue that if we start talking about employment rights for individuals who have been diagnosed with cancer and their caregivers, many of your audience members would be shocked to know how inadequate the protections are for workers in this country. I mean, now even I'm interested. (laughs) Is there like something where if you're diagnosed with cancer, your, your employer can fire you? So you can't be fired because you were diagnosed with cancer, but there are only limited protections for somebody at work. And there are sort of barriers to entry to get those protections. So for example, the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is one of the most well-known laws about taking time off from work, both for individuals dealing with their own serious medical condition or if they're a caregiver, FMLA only applies to employers with 50 or more employees. So if someone works for a smaller business, they're not going to have access to the FMLA. Additionally, someone has to work for that employer for a year or longer uh, before they even get FMLA rights. And so if someone has been at a job for six months and then gets diagnosed, the FMLA is not going to give them or they don't have access to the FMLA to be able to take job protected time off. Even if you have access, it's unpaid leave. And so most of us can't go 12 weeks without any sort of income coming in. Uh, so, you know, that's just one example of where, you know, there there is a protection for some, but it is compared to many other countries in the world, very inadequate. Yeah. I mean, that's, A bit shocking, even for me, living and working in this country, that, you know, you have to reach a certain number before, like, your medical protection kicks in, where it's like, oh, I work for an employer that has 20 employees. 
And they're like, you're not covered at all. And there are some other laws that there might be access to certain protections, but they're less straightforward. So the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, gives someone access to what's called a reasonable accommodation, which is like any change in the work environment. And so that could include things like special furniture or an adjusted schedule um, using technology. So that law could give someone the ability to take some job protected time off, but you have to work for an employer with 15 or more employees. So again, there's still a threshold that you have to meet in order to access that. States, of course, have their own state laws, but very much a patchwork. Uh, and let's be honest, how many Americans know any of this? But yet when they're diagnosed with cancer, now they're in a situation where they're not only trying to understand the medical component, they're potentially dealing with, you know, the emotions around mortality and all of the things that come with the serious medical diagnosis. They also sometimes have to become legal experts. And that's really where we come in to try to make that uh, burden a little bit lighter. I mean, that's certainly a lot. Like you go to your doctor for a routine checkup. Suddenly there's an extra test. You've been told you have, you know, the big C cancer, which is a major, you know, cause of mortality in the U.S. And now you're fighting your insurance and you're fighting your employer. That is... Like the first thing alone would be grossly overwhelming, right? Like just figuring out I have this diagnosis seems wildly overwhelming. Now trying to fight two other major industries also sounds exhausting. Absolutely. And that's actually where we came to our name. So the idea is that it is exhausting and there's so much you have to learn. There's so much information thrown at you. Uh, whether you're the individual who's been diagnosed or whether you're the caregiver or the loved one, right? There's layers on that as well. So we try to help people understand, you know, here's the information that you need. And then based on that information, here's what you need to maybe deal with now. And here's what can wait maybe till later, which is the very definition of triage. And that's how we came to name the organization of triage cancer. No, I mean, I think that's, a great name and it's also like a really good resource because everything flooding at you like i said that's just way too much to handle i'd be like hey everyone let me figure this out but certain things just aren't going to wait for you so knowing the order you have to take care of them in is also like a crazy good resource well thanks i think so too yeah so obviously we live in the us we have insurance you're going to be fighting or trying to figure out your insurance coverage because it's not like we get a letter that says, hey, you're going to have cancer. Be sure you pick a good insurance. It is so true. Uh, and in fact, we at Triage Cancer say there should be a class in high school on health insurance and finances because it is something that we all have to navigate, whether it's a serious medical condition or just normal checkup type stuff, we, you know, we all have to navigate health insurance and we all have to deal with finances. But most of us are never taught how to do that. We sort of trial by fire typically. And so there are so many studies done, but one always sticks out to me that 96% uh, of Americans don't understand the four most basic terms used in health insurance. 
Okay, let's hear them because I am sure I don't understand them. <laughs> Part of the 96. Well, so the first, first is your monthly premium. So that's what you pay monthly just to have health insurance. It's like having car insurance all year, but never getting into an accident. So that's your monthly premium. And then there are some extra costs that you incur when you actually go and get medical care. So most policies have an annual deductible, which is a dollar amount. It's a fixed dollar amount. It's going to vary by plan. So you could have a $500 deductible. You could have a $5,000 deductible. But the deductible is the amount that you have to pay out of pocket before your health insurance company kicks in. When you pay your deductible, then the cost share kicks in. So cost share is the next term. And that's the percentage of what the insurance company will pay and what you have to pay. So if someone has an 80-20 cost share, once you've paid your deductible, the insurance company will pick up 80% and you're responsible for 20%. Co-payments are something totally different. And that's, again, a fixed dollar amount where it could depend on the policy, but it could also depend on the service. So most policies have something like a $20 copayment to see your doctor or a $35 copayment to see a specialist or a $250 copayment if you end up in the ER. But the most important thing for everyone to know about their insurance policy is the out-of-pocket maximum. Did you know insurance companies, insurance policies had an out-of-pocket maximum? I did not know it had a maximum. Most do. And the maximum is, in theory, the most you're going to pay out-of-pocket per year for your health care. And the way you get to that out-of-pocket maximum is a math problem. So you add up your everything you pay towards your deductible, everything you pay towards your cost share, so that percentage, and everything you pay in copayments. And once you reach that amount, the insurance company kicks in at 100%. So you still have to keep paying those monthly premiums, but that's all you're going to pay for the rest of the year. Which is, I mean, good for people to know because I think the U.S. is the only place also that has like bankruptcy based on medical debt. But listening to you explain this makes insurance sound all the crazier to me. <laughs> like we just made up some magical system that we're like, don't ask how it works. It works. Don't question it because we're like, hey, here's a thing. You're going to pay for it monthly, regardless of if you use it or not. And people are like, okay, and that covers everything, right? And they're like, no, that doesn't cover anything. And you're like, what do you mean it doesn't cover anything? And they're like, well, there's a minimum you have to pay out of pocket, uh, even after paying us, before we pay for anything. And you're like, wait, hold on. But then, like, even if I pay that, you guys will cover it, right? And they're like, well, we'll cover some of it. That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly right. You just did an exceptional job explaining back the insanity of this system. And it, it explains why only 4% of Americans understand this, right? Like, I, I always think like, does that 4% include me, my colleagues and the insurance companies? <laughs> because everybody I talk to is like, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, it does just sound a bit crazy because I think most people like that 96% think, okay, I have heard I need health insurance because everyone's going into debt over healthcare. So I'm going to pay forever and maybe use this stuff. But if I need it, it covers me a hundred percent. And then finding out like, nope, 
doesn't do that at all is probably yeah. a, a little jarring. Absolutely. And I think it really does speak to why there is so much medical debt in this country, because people generally will pick their health insurance policy based on that monthly premium. So how much do I have to pay each month for it? I want the cheapest thing possible. But then they find out if they get sick, oh, this doesn't cover as much as I thought it covered, or it has a huge out-of-pocket maximum, or it's one of these bizarre types of plans that doesn't follow any of the rules, which we unfortunately still have in this country too. And then that's how they end up in debt. And there's this term used in the cancer community, financial toxicity, uh, where it's comparing the financial burden of a cancer diagnosis and treatment to the physical burden that many cancer treatments cause to somebody's body. And that that financial toxicity can be as significant as the physical toxicity. And that, that speaks to people's not understanding any of this. And sometimes not figuring it out until it's too late and they've already incurred so much of that debt. But our message is it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom because, you know, a few years ago, we passed the Patient Protection and Affordability, Patient Protection and Affordability Act, or the ACA. Uh, and the ACA is better known as Obamacare, which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, and one of the most important things that the ACA did was it said that insurance companies can't deny you because you have a pre-existing condition. So even if you've been diagnosed from cancer, diagnosed with cancer, the insurance company still has to sell you the policy. And they can't charge you more just because you have a cancer diagnosis. And so the importance of that is if somebody gets diagnosed now and finds out I have a terrible policy and I have to spend all this money. Every year we have the opportunity to make new decisions and to buy different policies. So yes, you're going to have to pay what you have to pay now, but come January 1st, you'll be able to pick a new policy. But in order to do that effectively, you have to understand these terms and how it all works with respect to the out-of-pocket maximum. Yeah, I mean, that's when you're talking about like, oh, there's some weird cheap plans that don't follow the rules. Oh, good. I hope I don't have one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super hard as consumers to know sometimes what it is that you're buying because, of course, you know, insurance agents aren't saying like, this is a bare bones plan that doesn't cover anything. Buy this one. They're just kind of marketing it in a way that like this is a more affordable option. They don't share the fine print. Yeah, I mean, again, I think most countries that don't have this insane system we're working on don't realize, like, we're paying monthly for it, and it's not, like, $20. I don't know if you know what the average is. I would be interested to figure it out. Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. I don't know what the national average is. It all also depends on, like, is it someone getting insurance through their employer because typically the employer will pay a portion of a pre of the premium and the employee pays a portion versus someone who's going into the marketplace to buy insurance. But that's, it's a good question. I'm sure somebody's done the math somewhere to figure out what the average is, but I can tell you, I know a single woman in good health is currently paying $700 a month for insurance just for her. That's a lot. It's a lot. And people hearing that 
who don't know about our system and just heard $700 a month for healthcare that doesn't fully cover you might now start to see the the world we're living in over here in the US. Yeah, it's 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 definitely complex. Um, but again, I think the good news is and what we're really trying to do is to get the word out that people can make educated decisions. Uh, and that there are potentially ways to make that insurance more affordable. So as I mentioned, the ACA in the marketplaces, it created, it's still private insurance that you're buying from private insurance companies, but there's some financial assistance available. And so, and with the pandemic, there's been added financial assistance to help people afford uh, their health insurance. So it, you know, it's still not a perfect system, it's certainly not the system I would create, but it isn't all doom and gloom, provided that we can get the word out to people that it's available. And I'm, I am very glad. I don't think I touched on it because my brain's moving a mile a minute trying to comprehend some of this. Like the ACA, it got a lot of press, both good and bad, when it came out, what, like a decade ago? 2010. Okay. So a little over a decade ago. It got quite a lot of press, but being guaranteed insurance, not, you know, being eliminated from the pool of being taken care of just because you are sick is on its own, like a crazy good inclusion to our laws. Unequivocally. Yes. Uh, it is something, you know, I, I was doing this work prior to the ACA and we would spend a lot of time with people trying to help them piece together possibilities for health insurance, particularly in situations where they had insurance through their employer and they have to stop working due to treatment. So what do you do for health insurance now? Um, you know, we do have some laws that allow you to keep that employer sponsored coverage, but only for a certain amount of time. When that runs out, what do you do? You had a cancer diagnosis now, and so you couldn't just buy insurance in the individual market. And it left people in a really bad place, particularly you know, in, in situations where they didn't have a spouse maybe who had employer-sponsored insurance. And so you know, we saw early versions of, of the law, of the bill, and thought, oh my God, this is incredible. We didn't believe it was really gonna get passed. It did, but that provision actually took a few years to go into effect. And we held our breath until that provision went into effect because we really didn't think it was going to happen. And then when it did happen, there were, I don't even, I lost count at the number of efforts at the federal and state level to try to repeal the ACA or take out those protections. Thankfully, they all failed. And again, I'm not saying it's a perfect law or it's the law I would have written, but when you think about these situations as human beings, it is game changing for families in this country to know that just getting a cancer diagnosis doesn't exclude you for the rest of your life from being able to access health insurance. Yeah, because again, it is something that we all kind of require to live in the American healthcare system. Absolutely. So. Not getting a one-time diagnosis and just being written off for life oh. is a really big deal. And it wasn't just serious diagnoses like cancer or heart disease. We heard stories of people with severe acne being denied health insurance. 
pregnancy was sometimes a pre-existing condition for certain policies. Yeah. So okay. it, it was okay. a significant problem that needed to be dealt with. All right. That um, people can't see my face, but I might see if I can roll back through this and grab a screenshot of my face when you said that, um, because I'm sure it was good. Because when you said acne and pregnancy as pre-existing conditions, I think I almost had a stroke. It, it's crazy, right? Like it's it, especially when you think about in many situations, the American system is held up to be a good one, you know, and, and there are definitely people smarter than me to say whether or not that's the truth, but there are absolutely still barriers to entry. I think the ACA made huge leaps and bounds forwards. I think we still have work to do uh, because it didn't also address those ancillary issues of, you know, well, what do you do about work? So, okay, great. I have health insurance. I'm not going to go bankrupt for my medical bills, but I don't have protection at work. Or I do have protection. I can take FMLA leave, but how do I pay my bills? How do I pay my mortgage or buy food for my family if I'm not working? Um, so, you know, when we look at healthcare, we take a very holistic approach to that. It has to include things like job protections. It has to include things like access to wage replacements, whether that's through disability insurance or paid leave. It also has to take into account the caregivers. So there the number of unpaid caregivers in this country is significant. And, you know, they always talk about that sandwich generation. Like, that's it. That's the problem. You know, what do you do if you have to care for an aging parent and a sick spouse uh, and you can't go to work? Like, how is that going to impact your finances and your overall well-being? And so uh, when we talk about healthcare, it includes those pieces as well. And I don't, I don't want to do a couple of things. Number one, I want to just sit here and rip on the, the government and its systems because I'm sure we could for quite a while. And I don't want to make it too gloomy because, you know, you're providing like a very bright beacon of hope in a very bleary, dark world currently. I try. But I was hoping if it's okay with you, I could just run like a little mock scenario that hopefully I don't jinx myself with and we'll just kind of see how the the system operates a little bit. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, I am turning 30, if it matters. Say I was diagnosed, and we'll give it really general cancer because I'm a little afraid of jinxing myself, but I get a cancer diagnosis that I know is going to require some form of major treatment. What are kind of, what's the first steps like I need to be aware of? I think my first suggestion to you would be to take a look at your insurance policy. So make sure you understand, you know, what is that annual deductible? Have you got, have you received any care up until this point? Have you met your deductible yet? I would absolutely want you to know what your out-of-pocket maximum is. And what is like a normal, if there is a normal out-of-pocket maximum, like a general range that you would expect someone to pay yearly? So no such thing as normal. It's really going to depend on where the policy is coming from. So there are employer policies with a $1,500 out-of-pocket maximum. There are marketplace plans with a $8,200 out-of-pocket maximum. So it really does range. And 
by no means am I suggesting that $8,000 isn't a lot of money because of course it is. But again, it allows you to at least plan around a worst case scenario. Uh, so once you know, you know, okay, here's where I am in the year towards what I paid and here's my out-of-pocket maximum, what I could potentially still have to pay, then you'd want to make sure that any providers you were seeing were in the plans network. So that means doctors, hospitals, labs, imaging centers, are they covered by your policy? Yet because another thing people are going to lose their minds hearing <laughs> that don't understand this because it's like, even if you do have insurance, even if you are paying for it, even if you're fully covered, you can't see everyone. <laughs> no. There's still going to be a network of providers. Uh, and depending on your policy, you could have a wide network, you know, that might be across different hospital systems even. Or if you have, it's called an HMO, you could have a more limited network. And that's actually something that that is an issue for a lot of people where, especially if they have like a, a rare type of cancer, or a rarer type of cancer, and there's maybe only a few specialists in that type of cancer and treatment in the country, and then they find out, wait, I can't go to that provider, but they're the experts in my type of cancer. And sadly, the answer is, well, you can go, but you're going to pay 100% to see that provider because they're not in your plans network. Yeah, even, even having insurance, you're playing completely out of pocket, and there is no maximum. Right. Yikes. Okay. So yeah. So once you've checked, you know, how much you've paid, how much you have left to pay, is everybody in network? Then you need to make an assessment. Like, is this gonna work for me for next year? Or maybe your out-of-pocket maximum is astronomical, or maybe the doctors you want to see or the hospitals you want to go to aren't in your network. If that's the case, we are actually about to enter what's called open enrollment which is the time of year every year where we can make changes. And so you could potentially go into the marketplace and look for a plan that did cover your providers or that did have a better out-of-pocket maximum. So that's, I mean, that's really the message we want people to walk away with is even if it's bad right now, because cancer treatment generally lasts a little while, you could have options in, for the coming year to make changes. Yeah. And that's kind of like the follow-up to that is like, I personally know that I have insurance through my workplace. And if things are bad, like we said, I am not going to be able to continue to work in my workplace. Yeah. So then I would want to talk to you once we got through the health insurance, yeah. you know, everybody took a deep breath, then we would start talking about work. So what are your options at work? Can you work through treatment, which many people do? And if you can, what's available to help you? So that gets back to that conversation around, you know, the uh, ADA and reasonable accommodation. So would a adjusted work schedule work? Would telecommuting be helpful? Would certain software or a shifting in responsibilities allow you to both receive your treatment and continue working? And believe it or not, when people understand reasonable accommodations, many of them are able to continue working. And many employers actually prefer that because, well, there's a number of reasons, but you know, you don't have to try to find a new employee, retrain them, get them, you know, morale in the workplace doesn't go down. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why employers want to provide those accommodations. 
but generally someone needs to know about them to ask for them. So that's another piece of the puzzle. I mean, yeah. if you're like, if you're at work and just thinking, wow, I have to have these treatments, you know, and I'm seeing all of my doctors in the morning or at in the evening, like, I don't know if I can continue to work with these hours. That's a really crucial piece of the puzzle to know that you can ask for like some form of, of accessibility to it. You're like, Hey, I really need to not be at work at 8am. Can I be at work at nine? Yeah. And I think the important piece is not only can you ask for them, but employers that are bound by the ADA, so 15 or more employees, are required to provide accommodations. So it's not just, hey, I'm asking for a favor. Can I come in late? It's actually a requirement that they provide them to eligible employees. And the coolest thing to me about the ADA and how it was written is that it's super flexible. So you can ask for more than one accommodation. They can change as your needs change. So maybe you just start treatment. You're like, I have all these appointments, you know, happening. I, I need every morning off for the next week. And then you start treatment and you're like, oh, I really only need Fridays off. It can adjust. Or maybe it's, I need Fridays off, plus I need to only work in the evenings. And so there's lots of different ways people have been accommodated depending on what the side effects and their needs are. Uh, but it isn't just like a, okay, you've got your accommodation, check, you're done for the year. It is a evolving, moving process, um, which is why I think they're so incredibly helpful. Well, and that's good because not everything is so simply solved by one fix, right? Like there could be multiple things that you have to work around. Uh, absolutely. And sometimes you don't know what it's going to be. So when you first start treatment, you might think, yeah, I need every Friday off for chemo. But what you don't know is that the side effects don't kick in for three days. And so Monday morning is when you're really feeling terrible. Uh, and so sometimes the conversations are about, you know, you do your best to ask for what you think you need with the accommodation. But then you also sort of have to leave the door open that it could potentially change in the future as needs change. Yeah. And hopefully you work for an employer that is not so aggressively greedy that they are going to like fight you over every little thing. They're a compassionate employer who realizes that you're, you know, a valued member of the team that at the very minimum, if they got rid of, would have to retrain new people to do your job and they wouldn't do it as well. Hopefully they realize all of those things where they're like, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Let's figure out how we can help. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, you know, the law is just the bare minimum of what employers have to provide. And many are much more generous than that. Of course, in my line of work, we sometimes only hear the horror stories, but that isn't all that happens. You know, we do definitely hear great stories and they're it's a survey done every couple of years that shows that employers really, for the most part, are trying to accommodate employees for exactly the reasons you're talking about, right? Like you're a valued employee and it's mutually beneficial to provide the accommodation that's hopefully going to be perhaps time limited, although it doesn't have to be, uh, depending on your situation. But then at the, again, in best case scenario, at the end of all of it, you're still able to then be that valued employee. Yeah, absolutely. I think this has been incredibly valuable. I had a listener write in a question 
and we'll see how this goes because I never know with listener questions. But they said, uh, is there a reason laws are written in such a way that it requires lawyers to translate them? Oh, that might be above my pay grade. <laughs> I uh, was not sure looking at this because I'm like, sure, I think everyone's like seen a law or some form of it written at some point, And they do look super complex. Yes, especially the way they're written in the United States. If they are amending another law, they they are a little hard to decipher. I will certainly say that. Um, and having worked in Congress, you know, and trying to draft them, it's not always the easiest thing. I don't know the why, but I'll tell you that that's really at the core of what triage cancer is all about, is to make sure that people who aren't lawyers can understand what the law says and then can access the protections and use the laws as the tools that they're meant to be to help make some of the cancer experience, journey, people feel differently about those words, but to make some of it less burdensome um, is really at the core of what we're about. And I appreciate your time immensely to come and talk about this and, you know, explain things for people, especially me, while I'm having, you know, a little, a little freak out internally listening to it. Well, I am really appreciative of the opportunity to spread the message a little bit. And you have my email address, so come open enrollment. If you've got questions, let me know. <laughs> All right. Um, I'd love to give you some time if you want to plug, you know, where people can find things you do or if they, you know, want to want to find anything that you do. You know, is there a good place they can do that? So Triage Cancer provides all of our resources completely free of charge. All of the information can be found on our website at triagecancer.org. That's T-R-I-A-G-E, cancer.org. Uh, and in addition to our educational materials, we host free events, both online and in person around the country in the United States. And we also have a legal and financial navigation program. So if someone you know, reads one of our educational materials, but still has questions about how the law may pertain to their situation, they can fill out a form on our website and schedule an appointment to talk with one of our experts on staff. We don't provide legal advice or representation, but we'll explain what the law says and how the law applies to their situation and empower them to take next steps. And all of that, again, is available on our website. And that's awesome. I hope anyone that needs it, you know, certainly comes and finds you and gets the help they need. Thank you again so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. The only way to help this show grow is to get new listeners. So please tell people that you know that you enjoy this show. I know you're listening to it, especially if you made it this far. You must have enjoyed it somewhat. Just tell somebody about that. I'm also always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. The October rankings are now finalized. Number one, the United States, with California and Oregon as the top states, and that is number one, number two in that order. Number two, Australia, with New South Wales pulling ahead in the last days. Number three, the United Kingdom. Number four, 
Canada, with top province Alberta way out in front. And number five, Sweden, with Vestra Oatland squeaking out a last-minute victory. And man, do I hope I'm saying that right. These five actually dominated the leaderboard this month so much that I'm comfortable calling it a day early. But that's all for now. I'll see you all on Thursday for an episode to get you over your next hurdle in life. You've got this, and I'm behind you all the way. Bye bye <laughs>